In this episode of Startups for the Rest of Us, Mike and I talk about monetizing B2C, selling a small SaaS versus running it, and more listener questions. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 437. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you built your first product, or you're just thinking about it. I'm Rob. Yeah, I'm Mike. And we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we've made. Speaking of mistakes, Mike, you got on a podcast with me today, and that was your first mistake. <laughs> so I want to find out <laughs> who... Is, so don't make the same mistake that Mike has just made. Mike, 436 who's the only, times in a row. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You'd think you'd learn. Fool me once. Shame on you. All right. Who is the only non-Jedi in the original Star Wars trilogy to use a lightsaber? Uh, the only non-Jedi that would have been, um, Han Solo. Nice. Which movie and what was he doing? Uh, Empire Strikes Back and he was, uh, you know, slicing it open to keep Luke warm after freezing it. There it is. Well done, Mike. I thought they smelled bad on the outside. <laughs> so what, what is the word this week, sir? Oh, that is not a great lead in. <laughs> uh, nope, not at all. We lost our three listeners. Well, I have a article that's going to be in the SAS mag on email follow-ups. It's coming out, I think, in the next week or two. And we are at MicroConf this week. And my understanding is that the magazine is going to be distributed at MicroConf by FE International, who is a MicroConf sponsor. And I've been working on the article since the fall at some point. So it's just, you know, it's, it's very different than working with online articles where you can do all the editing and you just publish it versus something that's actually printed and then months later <laughs> it kind of get that's actually printed so we well, yeah, lead time on them because i'm sure they print them overseas and they get shipped here and they have all that layout and all that stuff it's tough i've heard when i've contributed articles to magazines it's like three four month lead time yeah and my wife used to work in the magazine industry at eh publishing and that it was the same thing she she never knew what date it was because they had to work three or four months in advance so all of her work was you know three or four months out and she's just like what is today i have no idea what the month even is so she'd always get confused about that but yeah like the it should be coming out next week i haven't seen the uh the final article but it should be good it'll be interesting to see that in print yeah congratulations man that'll be good and as you said you know we happy microconf day we're hanging out emceeing and doing all that kind of stuff uh, when this episode comes out. I also wanted to mention again that next week, in essence, I'll be in London with my my family, and I'm thinking about putting together a bootstrappers meetup with Sherry. And so if you have an evening, you know, between April 1st and 6th, go to robwalling.com slash London, fill out a quick three question survey to figure out if we can pull something together. I, th I believe we're staying in the west end of London, so it will probably be within that vicinity. Hope to see you there. Cool. And I, I would kind of recommend or that the, we should never have microconf scheduled in late March ever again. Like that was the worst timing <laughs> ever. I know. This is the first time we've done it this early and it will never happen again. I think you and I have both just had experienced great pain with trying to pull it together. Yeah. Part of it's just because it's the beginning of the year and like obviously like tax season kind of factors into it. But like my health insurance is right up for renewal about this time. So like I've got all this paperwork to go through for that. And between my business, my wife's business and then personal taxes and then all the stuff going on with microcon. It's just really, really hard to keep up with everything. Yeah. And then there's it's one last month to sell tickets because we have to 
you know, I think you and I often start thinking about it at the first of the year, like, hey, microcons in a few months. But that didn't work this year because we had 90 days from the first of the month. So we just had to push everything on a different time time scale. And, you know, given that I'm cranking on all this tiny seed stuff, which, you know, we had mental goals to get a bunch of stuff done by microconf. It's like if we had another month, things would be just so much, uh, so much better. So, uh, you know, in the past, we've often done microconf like April 30th. And I think if we can get as close to that date as possible, that's kind of where, where we want it to be. And one last thing on microconf, if you're listening to this and are coming to starter edition this year, we have a new edition. Uh, we have a microconf community ambassador I wanted to introduce you to. So this is uh, Marie Poulin. She has spoken at microconf this past year, and she's also attended uh, the previous two years. But what we wanted to do is we wanted to have essentially a community ambassador in place that people could go talk to. I get the impression that some people are kind of a little hesitant to come talk to you and me directly just because we're involved in the conference itself. But it started edition, it really made a lot of sense to bring somebody else in who could kind of act as that that interface and ambassador either on their behalf and kind of make them feel comfortable to coming to microconf. Not that we don't do that ourselves, but I do sense some hesitation from some people in talking to us just because they're just starting out. Well, sure. And we can't we can't talk to everyone. We can't gather everyone. I mean, when the, con- you know, the first year we did the conference, if I recall, it was like 110 people. You and I could almost single-handedly, you know, if, assuming we stayed up till 4 a.m. every night, which we did, almost talk to everyone there, almost get everyone gathered and try to build that community. And that was a lot of hustle in the early days. But given that we have back-to-back conferences, both of the conferences are substantially larger than that. And since they are bigger, there's more moving parts and you and I are just busier than we used to be with stuff. This makes a lot of sense, right? Is to have another person. And Xander does, you know, as much as he can too, although he tends to be running a lot of the logistics and such, but to have someone else who can who can help connect people and who they, you know, feel comfortable kind of gathering around, I think is a, I think is a really good idea. Did you come up with that idea yourself? Yeah, I did. I just reached out to her and asked her if it was something she'd be interested in doing. And she said yes. And, you know, kind of worked things out. That's cool. So I think we are both excited to have, uh, have Marie hanging out and building some community at MicroConf Starter. So what are we talking about this week? This week, we're going to be running through some listener questions, some comments. We actually have a callback to a question we discussed a few weeks ago. So it's a pretty good pretty good mix today. Several voicemails, which I, as you know, I like. Our first question is actually a comment from Michael Needle. And he says, you guys so crush it. I've written before and you responded to at least one of my questions on the air. I just listened to the latest episode about SaaS KPIs and I wanted to say that you nailed it. This info came at exactly the right time for a project I'm working on. So thanks for keeping the podcast going and keeping it so relevant. I'm always learning something from you guys, but today was really helpful. Thanks. Really appreciate that. It's nice when we do something that uh, hits someone right where they are at that time. Our next email is a follow-up from Zamir Khan, who had emailed a few weeks ago about his B2C SaaS app called VidHug, which he built as a scratch-your-own itch and has low LTV and that kind of stuff. And you know, he had, he had asked us if he was crazy, and you and I discussed it for a while. He says, hey, guys, thanks so much for answering my question on the podcast and in such great detail. I have to admit, when Mike first answered yes to my am I crazy question, my heart sank, but I soon realized the joke. You guys really got me. I was actually bracing myself the whole time for a take that I would strongly disagree with, but it never came. I pretty much agree with everything you guys said. I'm giving myself a finite timeline, likely the end of the summer, if not earlier, to scale VidHug beyond the point you talked about, for example, $5,000 a month. And if not, then I'll put in the work to remove myself from it and make it a mostly passive income stream, if that's possible. 
Recently, the experience I've had that I think is probably another downside of B2C is it's extremely important to set support expectations. I've got customers in multiple time zones, and they're all working on an important special occasion. I can't afford from a mental standpoint to take all of that on, so I'm putting in work to set up some realistic expectations, when we'll be available to respond, etc. I appreciate now that in a B2B North America-focused business, that problem is quite a bit easier to manage. Even still, I imagine setting support expectations is something a lot of new founders don't get right away. Things like having a live chat widget on your site. I've had one from Drift and I'm removing it. The value add hasn't been great in terms of talking to customers, whereas it seems to signal that we're available at all hours, even when it shows offline, people aren't understanding that. I'd love to hear your take on setting support expectations, chat versus email, et cetera. I don't know. I mean, in all honesty, I think he's doing a good job of it. I think just setting them is is like the you know the right step to letting people know how long it'll take you to respond. And with some businesses, I think chat works great. And in an early, when I was a single founder, I would never put chat on the site. It's just too interruptive. And if you're trying to write code and get other things done, you, you push them towards email. People do tend to think deeper about what they're going to email about. Whereas with chat, they can just start typing as soon as they have any thought. If you're B2C and you're a high volume, low cost thing, you really do need to, to think about narrowing narrowing that focus down to just the, the critical chats that get through. If you're higher priced, it might be a lot less of an issue. I think if you are are going to have that support, like if you get a true support system in place and there's like lots of different apps out there that'll do it, you know, there's Zendesk, there's Teamwork Desk, there's Groove, there's like all kinds of different things out there. But just about any one of them should respond to an email with like a ticket number or should be able to and give them a ticket number and tell them this is what you should expect in terms of a response time. Because if you don't set that expectation with them through email, if they send the email and they don't hear back from you, it's very easy for them to say, oh, I haven't heard from you guys in three hours. I'm going to send another email or five minutes. There are people out there who will send you an email and five minutes later, they're like, I haven't heard from you yet. I've so had that. So you need to set those expectations and having some sort of automatic reply with a ticket number and saying, Hey, this is when you'll hear back from us. And this is the days of the week that we respond to tickets. That's going to go a long way. I wouldn't do that from the start. I would do it when it becomes a problem. That's my own personal, because I find them, I personally find them irritating when I get the response. It's like, I don't want that. And if it's not a problem, don't clutter up people's inboxes. But thanks for the, uh, yeah, thanks for the feedback and input and best of luck. Moving forward, feel free to update us at the end of the summer based on you know what happens with VidHug. I think we're all curious to hear about it. Our next email is actually another follow-up. Z had asked us about insurance and uh, getting you know what insurance does a, a SaaS app need, I believe was the question a few weeks ago. And you and I had discussed it. And he says, hey guys, thanks for taking my question and the feedback. I actually did find FounderShield and got liability insurance through them before hearing your response on the podcast today. Funny that you mentioned it, but yes, they are awesome. Highly recommended. The biggest thing was not just the personal insurance, but the cyber data security. As you grow your SaaS, I think it's important to protect yourself, especially if you're doing B2B and storing a good amount of data. The insurance was not too bad. Roughly comes out to between 1500 and 3000 per year, depending on your policy, up to around $1 to $3 million of protection. Hope that's helpful as a follow-up. Thanks again. You guys do an awesome job. Keep it up. Always love to hear the follow-up, man. Because you and I can have ideas and thoughts and experience because I've used Founder Shield, but it was a couple years ago and it's cool, you know, the we all get better as the community gets better. Yeah, things change over time and you know, you don't necessarily always have the context from when you first did something versus what, you know, recent updates are. Sometimes they'll grandfather people or sometimes they'll change policies and you don't necessarily notice because you're just still a customer or, you know, operating under some 
slightly different agreement that was in the past. So it's, it's good to hear these types of updates. For our first question of the day, we have a voicemail about monetizing a B2C app. Hi, Robin Mike. This is Gurpreet. I'm calling you from India. I have a question regarding a new side project that I have just started. Check out the website flowlog.app. This is a personal productivity tracker, uh, which is inspired from a recent podcast that I heard on the Tim Ferriss show of a great writer called Jim Collins. And he has a system to log his creative hours and so on. So I'm making an app around it. My question is more around monetization. This is a side project for me. I'm not planning to earn big money from this, but I would like that this, my expectation would be that in a reasonable period of time, let's say about six months or so, the app should start generating three to $5,000 a month so that I can continue working on it, developing it, maybe spend some resources on marketing and so on. My question is, what is what according to you is the best way to do that one way that i could think of is have a free app on the app store but have a subscription model for certain uh, advanced features that is one it would have to be a very small amount two to five dollars a month or i could just set up a patreon page um, and see the people who are benefiting from this app might want to donate something can you share your thoughts. How would you think about it? So for listeners following along, it's a personal productivity app. So very much B2C. It's based on Jim Collins' system that he talked about on the Tim Ferriss podcast. And it's flowlog.app. F-L-O-W-L-O-G.app. What do you think, Mike? Well, I I think the question that he's trying to answer is what's the best way for him to get the app to generate you know between three and five thousand dollars a month in three to six months and the thoughts that he'd had were maybe putting it out as a free app on the app store and maybe having a subscription model for advanced features or maybe doing a patreon page what sorts of things would we think about uh, in terms of going in that direction and i think with the putting the free app on the app store that's an i don't know it's it's a Great idea in terms of getting distribution. The problem is determining which features you're going to charge people for and how you're going to get essentially traction there to the point that people are going to pay for it. One thing I'd be careful about in terms of the subscription model is I would not charge 2 to $5 a month. I would charge a yearly fee instead of a monthly fee. Because if you're charging 2 or $5 a month, then what you're going to end up with is people sign up for a month or two and then they're going to churn out versus those people who sign up, whether it's because they're aspirational or because they're really committed to tracking that stuff and they want to kind of get the full experience. You're going to have a lot less chargebacks, a lot less churn. It's going to be easier to deal with if you charge on an annual basis. There's a bunch of apps that I pay for on an annual basis, but if I were paying for them on a monthly basis, I would probably think twice just because sometimes I'll, I'll fall off the wagon, so to speak, and stop using them for a little bit, and then I'll come back to it later. But with an annual plan, they can always come back to it later. And, and if they're getting charged for it every month, if they stop using it for even a couple of weeks, they may very well second guess it and say, oh, well, I'm not going to continue paying for this because I haven't used it. So 
those are the things that I would probably think about. Like the, 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 you have to do some customer research to figure out whether or not the features that you want to charge for are going to be worth it for people to pay for them. And that's going to take some customer development. You're going to have to talk to people and without kind of using your app, I don't know exactly what those features would be. Beyond that, like you could also go the route of trying to charge outright for it. But I, I feel like that's probably longer term, potentially a losing proposition, because if you have back end stuff that you need to keep running to store their data or be able to export it, do reports on those types of things, they're probably going to be a support burden for you that you're not going to want. I don't think I have anything to add. I think everything you said is, is pretty, I mean, this it's B2C is really hard. I think five, three to five K a month in six months is extremely, extremely ambitious. I, I mean, you would have to just catch a lucky break. Uh, to grow this to that, because if you're charging, as you said, $60 a year or $100 a year, I mean, I guess that's the thing, right, is if if you are, let's say you, you were able to pull off 100 bucks a year, you do only need to sell 30 people a month on it to be able to use it. And so if you don't use a freemium model, if you use a freemium model, you're going to get one to 3% about to sign up. So that means you need 10,000 people to get between 100 and 300 and that that's every month and i guess if you were charging a uh, 100 bucks a piece at that point and you could pull it off then that would be a substantial amount of money right because 100 times 100 is is 10,000 but i think that those getting 10,000 people to download your app every month and i think the price sensitivity of this group means you're not going to be able to charge 100 so with some more realistic numbers i just i feel like it's it's doable but very difficult and you're going to have to catch a lucky break you're almost going to have to have like jim collins endorse it link to it from his website or you know tweet about it and then get some momentum or i don't there's some stuff interesting stuff needs to happen so these are those plays where it's it's a little more hit based meaning it's more like it's not exactly but it is more similar to writing a hit song or making a movie that everyone likes because it is b2c rather than building a more boring b2b app that it has that repeatable process that we that we know how to execute on you know whether it's inbound or outbound sales and you do this marketing and you optimize your funnel and and this and that it's more erratic and it's more difficult to accomplish with mobile i don't want to discourage him from doing it i think if you're super interested in doing it and you want to do it as an experiment and you don't need that much money i wouldn't have the expectation of three to five k in six months i think is is one thing i think you could make that as your your high-end goal and if you achieve it that's awesome let us know uh, but i think it's much more realistic to build this and make a few hundred dollars a month by the time you get get down the road but again it depends you you just have to get in you'll know more than us in two weeks right because you'll or you know four weeks or whatever when you get this app in people's hands it's like what is their price since what, how are other apps like this charging? Can they only charge 30 to 50 a year? How many people can you get in and all that stuff? So definitely wish you the best of luck and uh, hope it works out. My other comment that I would add on that, I, I agree with you on the, the fact that it's probably going to take longer than that three to six months to get there. But there's also the trajectory to consider because very early on, you're not going to make as much money. So like the first month, let's say that you make $50 or $100, like you want to progressively be making more money as time goes on versus having like a giant spike either early on or late later on in the three to six month time frame that you're looking at that is going to peak and then come back down and maybe you hit it for one month but then it it drops and i don't know what that's going to look like for your app or for 
these types of apps, but that's something to be careful of is what the trajectory looks like over time, because you might not hit that. Even if you're selling, let's say annual subscriptions, let's say you sell 10 annual subscriptions this month and 20 the next month, as long as those are continuing to go up, you're going to get there at some point, but you want to make sure that you're on that trajectory. And if you're not, then it's the problem. So thanks for the question and best of luck. Our next voicemail is about whether to sell a small SaaS app that's doing about 100K a year versus continuing to run it. Hey guys, my name is Adam. I have a SaaS uh, Ruby on Rails app that I just I just hit yesterday, 100,000 ARR, which is awesome. So I had a question about choosing to have someone acquire an app versus running it myself. So the question is, what is the value, the true value of this thing that I purchased, uh, that I've created? I actually talked to FE International, and it looks like you get a bump for SaaS, but the multiples for these small companies like mine seem to be like two, two and a half. So if I made $50,000 in net income from that $100,000 ARR, and that's without paying myself, they would say that it was worth like maybe 130000 but for me, if I continue to run it, I'm going to make all those cash flows from the future cash flows of the business. And it seems like I would be a sucker to sell it for two and a half times net income because if I run it for the next 10 years, I'll get 10 times my current net income and it's probably going to continue to grow. So are the valuations really, really low for small businesses like us? Like I see uh, companies like traded on the stock exchange and they're getting these huge multiples like 20 or 30 or 100, right? So is it true that we're getting screwed as small micropreneurs and we only get two and a half times income? And is that ever a good deal for a developer who likes running a company? Would you ever want to sell it for two and a half? It seems like the buyer really gets the benefit, not the seller. Could you talk about those issues? Even with success, it seems like uh, what is the value of this thing, even if you've made it to 10,000 ER? 100,000 ER. Thanks so much. Sorry for the long message. Bye. So just to clarify, two and a half times net profit sounds low to me. Um, I would think for a small SaaS app like this, you should get three and a half. And if it's growing, you know, if it's growing, you should get between three and a half and four, even for a small app like this. So, but I don't think that, I don't think that counters his point, right? He's basically saying two and a half, three and a half, whatever. He sees things on the public market trading at 10 or a hundred times, you know, net multiple. And shouldn't he just run it for 10 years and get 10 years of earnings rather than taking two and a half, three and a half, whatever it is? What do you think, Mike? Well, I think one of the things to keep in mind is that, one, like you're operating in this price range, I would say, where the multiple is going to be different based on where you're at. So if you have a business that has a, like you, I think you mentioned, 50K net income, if somebody takes it over, they're probably going to have to put somebody in, which essentially reverses the the earnings of that particular business, which, again, that that is totally true. But if you had, let's say, 10x that, you had 500k of net income. The difference in value of that business versus something that only brings in 50 is going to be very, very different. So that's something to definitely keep in mind because there are certain ranges where, if a business is making this $50,000, it's not going to be worth nearly as much as something that has 500,000 of disposable income because they can use that money to bring somebody in and pay them, and they've still got 400,000 left to play around with to do other things, marketing bring on more people, do growth experiments, all kinds of different things. The other thing that I think he had mentioned was that comparing it against larger businesses, again, the earnings of those large businesses like public companies and things that you see on the stock market, they're making a lot more money. So they are going to naturally be priced higher. 
So those are the things I would definitely keep in mind. The the thing that he, he didn't mention at all was the fact that if you were going to run this for the next 10 years, for example, you, you said that you get to keep all of the, the net earnings from that. That is true, but is the business going to be the same in 10 years? Is it going to grow? Is a event going to happen at some point during those 10 years that is going to wipe out a substantial portion of the market? Is Google going to launch a product that competes directly in your space? Like, or is a funded company going to do the same thing? There's all these things that create risk for your business moving forward. And it's, you know, for a SaaS app, that risk is heavily reduced because people are already on a subscription and it's easier to mitigate those types of risks, but it is still a risk. And because of the scale that you're working at right now, it presents too much of a risk. I suspect that's why there's probably the two and a half multiple versus like what Robert said, you'd expect it at a three or four. But those are the, like the, you have to keep in mind that something could happen tomorrow and your entire business goes away. Like you could get sued or somebody could take the domain or you could, somebody could say, oh, well, we have a, your app name is actually a trademark and we own that and we're going to come in after you and sue you for $100,000. If you're only making 50000 a year, that puts you in a really tough spot. So those types of events factor into like a risk uh, over the next 10 years and you have no idea what those actually come out to be. Like it may happen, it may not, but there are factors you have to consider. Yep. I agree. I think people with a first time app feel like it will run forever. 10 years is forever in this space. Like so few businesses. This is why the small business analogy, like when people say, I just build a business, it's like a bakery or like a gymnasium or a grocery store. It doesn't work the same with SaaS apps and technology because this stuff changes so fast. And I mean, in 10 years, you've said it all, but I mean, the apps that I had that were making money in 2005 to 2010, I have sold all of them. And a lot of them have basically shut down and not because the code didn't still work, but it was often because like the code is so out of date that no one can maintain it now. It's a classic ASP or it's like ASP.net version, whatever, 3.0. And you have to completely rewrite the product to kind of keep it updated. And if you don't do that, then you just run out of the ability to find developers. Or Google makes an SEO change that completely decimates your product. I've had this happen multiple times. I know dozens and dozens of founders who've who've had their business just turned upside down overnight after years of building it into a you know a five, six, or seven-figure annual business. You can have new competitors, the market can change, you can have industries that get wiped out. You know, let's say you have a job board for for truckers. I mean, I'm just making stuff up here, but like, you know, the trucking industry is going to have a real issue, or at least truckers are over the next 10, 20 years as self-driving trucks come around. There's all these factors that you don't think when you have your first app and you feel like it, no one can touch it, you know, and, and there's no chance that this Twitter, you know, client or this Facebook client that I've built is going to get completely decimated when they decide that they're not going to support my API calls anymore, which they do all the time. And we've seen people within our community have apps, you know, have to do layoffs and have, you know, get hit pretty hard revenue wise by people churning out because you can't provide the value anymore. Or if you run an ESP, if you don't maintain it, you get on blacklist. Well, now you're deliverability is not as good. And so on and on and on. I, we, you and I could sit here and name, you know, you named getting sued. I mean, there are all these things that, that just happen the longer you do it. And so I'm not saying that 
you should sell for two and a half or three and a half or whatever you can get for it. What I am saying is don't think that you're going to run this business for 10 years without a substantial amount of work over that time. You may not have any work right now for six months, maybe nine months, then it'll start sliding. Something will change out there. And if you want to put in that work, then great, but don't think that you can just kind of coast for 10 years and and that your business isn't going to get turned upside down every, I'd say every 18 to 48 months. I, it's a big range, but it depends on, I don't know if you have, if you have APIs you're relying on, if you have, you know, all this, who your competitors are, what space you're in, but every couple years, you're probably going to get this big curveball. And if you're doing something else and can't pay attention to it, bad things happen. So that's really why people sell for those quote unquote lower multiples is because there's risk and because you want to take that cash flow ahead of time and take this several years of cash flow and just put it into your next thing. Typically, you know, typically it's, it's buy that next thing or buy out your own time so that you can then build the next bigger idea, you know, that can last longer. That's what a lot of, a lot of people do and not necessarily bigger in terms of headcount, but bigger in terms of, uh, of net profit, I think. Yeah. I, I want to second that. Like I was not saying that you should take this because of all the risks involved. It's more of a, just be aware that like, that's why some people do it. And kind of to Rob's point, like there's sometimes where people will just want to take that money off the table and, and take a year or two of net earnings in order to be able to do other things. And if that's something you want to do, then great. If not, then you can continue to run it. Just be aware that there's risks, no matter what you do, there's risks. If you sell it, it could become huge and blow up, or it may not. You may decide to run it for 10 years and it never grows beyond having a net profit of like 60 or 70,000. And it's like high enough that you don't want to get rid of it, but low enough that it's hard to live off of that based on where you've uh, kind of currently settled down. Yeah. And I, I think the idea of public companies, you know, are valued at 10 or a hundred times. Yeah, that's true. Most are not at a hundred. I mean, those are the outliers. If you look at Amazon, you know, just like, let's get rid of Amazon because they do their, you know, things this special way. Let's not look at the hot, hot, hyper growth, 50 million subscriber tech companies. They're, they're complete outliers, but look at the median price to earnings ratio or look at, look at the bottom 50%. And it starts to become a little more realistic. It's still doesn't tend to be down around two to four in the range that we're talking about, but you'll see a lot that are in that more five to 10 times annual earnings, which is in the ballpark, right? It's within the order of magnitude that we're talking about. And those are public companies. And to be a public company, you have Sarbanes-Oxley and all this crazy stuff you have to apply to. So you're not going to do it if it's going to be the same multiple because there's there's so much scrutiny and all the stuff that comes along with it. So unless it had some type of premium, then you wouldn't do it. So these are good things to, uh, yeah, good things to think about. I think the other thing I threw out is, Mike, when I started buying apps in the, let's say 2005 to 2011 timeframe, when it was really the heyday of me acquiring a bunch of stuff, the multiples were 12 to 18 months of net profit. There really was no FE. There was no quiet light. There was no empire flippers. And if, if they were around, we didn't know about them, but it was all like flippa and it was like deals on forums and it was cold email. And that's just kind of what that was the multiple. There was so much risk, you know, there was potential for fraud, which I think has been greatly removed in, in our space. And that is why I like the fact that we have these brokers now. I like the fact that the multiples have risen. It's it's certainly a bummer from an acquirer's perspective, but I do think that the whole community benefits by the fact that the multiples are, you know, are where they are today. You know, you were just talking about how, you know, things were different then. Those were also the days where you had a blockbuster card. 
That's true. I'm just saying that's how old you are. Well, exactly. No, but that's such a good point because, you know, Mike, Blockbuster could have thought, why don't we just run this thing for 20 years and just collect the revenue off of Blockbuster? And now they're bankrupt because Netflix came and ate their lunch. It's a perfect example. Blockbuster, I believe, was a public company. It's just another example of how quickly things are eaten up by technology these days. That's actually exactly what happened to them because they had the opportunity to buy Netflix for like a million or I forget how much it was, but like they had a, an opportunity to buy Netflix at one point and they decided not to because they're like, oh yeah, this is not going to fly and we'll eat their lunch. And it turns out it went the other way. Yeah. Cool. So good question. Thanks for sending that in. Our next question talks about what a SaaS app should look like at 10K MRR, 20K MRR and beyond. Hi guys, this is Adam again. I have a second question. I heard you say in one of your old podcasts that the goal for probably starts for the rest of us listeners is to get your app to 10,000 or 20,000 or 30,000 MRR. So could you guys discuss what your business should look like at different MRRs? Like at, like when do you hire your first employee and like when do you hire a customer support person? You know, right now I'm just doing everything myself with an offshore developer and I'm at like 8,300 MRR. So like, what do you recommend at like 5,000 MRR? Could you say like at 5,000 MRR, your company probably is like, you have a full-time job and you're in your basement weekends. And then at 10,000 and then at 15,000, you know, and at 20,000, like the stages of growth based on MRR, that would help a lot for me to get some kind of benchmark. Thanks so much guys for what you do. You're awesome. So, Mike, I will let you kick this off, but I think the answer is it depends, right? I mean, it depends pretty heavily because, like, there are people that can live on 5K MRR. And in that case, you're not, you know, in your basement working the day job. But if you live in, in California, then maybe you are. I also think it depends a lot on, on the app. Some apps need a ton of support. If you're building an ESP, people have a ton of questions. If you're building, a, you know, a single feature that someone just, you know, uh, let's think of like like bare metrics. You know, where you just opt into to Stripe and you OAuth, and then you have charts. I bet in the early days, Josh didn't need very many support people and could take that way way further. And if you're building a complicated app that takes a lot of stuff to get set up, so I'll preface that and then kick it over to you. Yeah, I I agree with you on the it depends. And there's I think part of the problem is that we don't necessarily have a lot of data points because so many different businesses are different from one another. So like, for example, your starting resources, like you, Rob Walling, your starting resources are going to be very different than the listener or myself or pretty much anybody else on the planet, because it's not just about the money that you have available. It's also about the relationships that you have, the code or technology that you already have, the, the experiences that you have. And sometimes it's like the relationships that you have with certain people allow you to get into channels that other people would not. So by virtue of like talking about those, like you're going to have to hire for different things than somebody like me or any given listener is going to have to hire for different things. The restraints on each individual are going to be different based on whether you have a spouse, whether you have kids, whether you have, you know, a, a sick parent that you have to take care of on Thursday afternoons, like all those things factor into it. And it makes it hard to come up with like a, a overreaching generalization that is globally applicable. But I mean, that said, like you can come to certain like the, as you said, like revenue benchmarks of like 5k and 10k and say, this is probably where you might want to start thinking about this. doesn't mean you do it. It just means you start thinking about those things. So I think when it gets to that stuff, like 
anywhere between I'd say three to five K, you probably want to start thinking about outsourcing support. When you get up to 10K, you should probably be full time on it. But again, it depends on whether or not you're going to be able to support yourself when you are full time on it. Uh, I heard Peldy from Balsamic talk about this. And uh, I think it was at a business of software talk where he said that he uh, held off on his first customer or first hire until after he got to a point where he was just literally not sleeping because he could not possibly do like all the stuff that was required of him. And it's, it's interesting because it's almost 10 years ago where that happened. It was around the, the beginning of 2009. And he was getting to the point of like, 2,500 customers on a weekly basis. And he was getting so much money coming in, but he just could not keep up with the business. And he's like, I have to hire somebody. But if you do the math on it, 2,500 customers in a week, I don't remember how much Balsamic was selling for the time. I'll say 40 or $50, but at that rate, like that's a substantial amount of money. And that's on a weekly basis, not even a monthly basis. So you can figure what, $60,000, $80,000 on a monthly basis, something like that. That's where he got to before he started bringing in one person. And it's because he didn't want to hire. At some point, you have to, like certain scales of problems are so large, you have to do things that maybe you don't want to. But at the same time, those things are sometimes good for the business. So Rob, I'll let you jump in and like, like, where do you think like at 10K, I think that, you know, it's pretty not standard, but like, that's kind of the benchmark most people use for like going full time on it. But like, what does 15K mean? Like, what does 20K, what does 25K mean? I mean, it, it really does depend on where you live and how far you can take that and where you're hiring out of. Because if you were, if you're in, let's say you're in Chiang Mai, Thailand, and you can live on 2,500 a month. And you can hire people there or in your same time zone, full-time developers for fifteen hundred two grand a month. Then you can move way faster if you want to, or you can just bank money like crazy, right? So it does depend on are you doing this as a lifestyle thing? Because when I think back to my experience, I had some apps where I didn't really want them to grow. I just wanted to rake in the three to twenty k a month they were throwing off and just kind of maintain that. And I had no aspirations to five or 10x that. And that's a great lifestyle business. And if that's your goal, then do that. But if you do want to get as big as possible, you want to create as much value financially for yourself as possible, and you want to grow it to 100K a month. And you know when you get into the seven figures and you have SaaS, a SaaS app in the seven figure revenue range, that's when even I think high six figures, but certainly if you get into seven figures, that is where the the exit multiples change because there's private equity that is willing to start talking about revenue multiples instead of net profit. So it doesn't become this two and a half to three and a half range. It, it can be one and a half to three times your top line revenue, but you have to get big enough that it's worth them even having a conversation with you. So all that to say, those are two totally different paths. And so I would say do support as long as humanly possible and don't hire a support person until you feel like, you know, I'm either really tired of this, I've learned all I can from my customers, um, or I don't want to do this anymore. And I could see hiring a support person before, well, before 10K. I could see hiring when you're at 5K if you just can move faster by not doing the support. At 15 or 20K, I would probably remove myself from development as much as possible, unless that's something you really want to do. But if you want to maximize growth, Stop doing it. Hire someone who's good. You have budget to do that. If you want to do it, that's fine. You're, you're not going to grow as fast. But that, just know that that's what you're doing. I'm not, you, know, you don't have to. That's the beauty of what we're doing. We're bootstrapping. You can do what you want. You know? And when you get into the 30 or 40K, well, that's when you 
can either just be raking in buckets of money, which is awesome, or you can start thinking long-term about, okay, now how do I double from here? Because it, it, I think it's 83,333 is where you, that's a million bucks a year. How do I get from 30 or 40 to 80? Where are my plateaus up ahead? And who do I need to hire to stay out ahead of that? That's typically when you start thinking about someone, hiring someone to head up marketing or growth because the founder's often doing it up until that point. And if that's, if that's what you want to do, then focus. But if you want to kind of rise up that one level to where you're managing product, engineering, marketing, customer success, and sales, then that's in that range where I think you have budget to hire someone who's good. Because someone who's good at growth and is not you know, someone junior you're going to have to train is expensive, much like a, a knowledgeable developer is expensive. So th- those are the trade-offs. I mean, we could walk through a hypothetical example. I don't know that it, it it's any more helpful than that. I think to me, it's like keep the team, do the opposite of what venture fund companies do, which they try to grow headcount super fast and spend the money. I think keep the team as small as possible unless you're putting yourself under undue stress, unless you're more stressed than you should be, unless things are falling through the cracks. You know, that that's where you've taken it too far. But in general, the more profit, the better, because it just gives you optionality. It gives you optionality to take more money off the top. It gives you optionality to hire someone when you need. Because if you have 10K a month, it's just thrown into that business bank account. That's great. Because if you decide in three months, like, oh my gosh, a competitor is doing this and we really need a head of sales or a head of customer success or whatever, you have the option to do that. And I think that's the entire point of the whole question is like, you know, what what kind of are the different options? And I think Rob just laid out a bunch of different places where at those points you have those options. And it really boils down to what you want to do with the business, where you see it going and what you don't want to actually do inside the business. Those are the things you hire out at whatever those points along the way are. So thanks for those two questions, Adam. I hope our discussion was helpful. Well, I think that about wraps us up for the day. If you have a question, you can call in to us at our voicemail number at 1-888-801-9690, or you can email it to us at questions at startupsthereustofus.com. Our theme music is an excerpt for Wild Out Control by Moot used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for startups and visit startupsthereustofus.com for full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.